Uh, it is really good to see you. I'm really uh, learning to enjoy Tuesday nights. Uh, there's just something about like being in the evenings and being with you guys and just getting to look forward to this and hangout time afterwards, uh, which by the way, if you're around afterwards, we, uh, many of us head over to Baker's over in the Doubletree and just hang out. There'll be food over there. Uh, we just spend some good time together over there. Um, if you don't know me that well, like I'm enjoying that I that over time we've been together doing this for what about seven months now, and uh, it's been fun getting to know each other. But I realize some of you I don't really know that well, and if you don't know me that well, uh, there's a couple of things you should know about me. Though you can probably guess just by looking at me at times, um, I'm cheap and I'm low maintenance, uh, which you can probably tell just from like the haircuts I give myself, <laughs> among other things, right? Uh, I'm cheap and I'm low maintenance, and generally uh, that works pretty well for me. I feel like it does what I want it to do in life, uh, which is save me money and simplify my life. Uh, but sometimes it causes problems. Sometimes just being cheap and low maintenance means that I let things like go longer than they probably should and I sometimes let things get out of hand a little bit uh, at times just by sitting back and not really doing things. Uh, one of the stories that probably best exemplifies this is uh, the car I got. So it was early in our marriage and I went car shopping and I always try and find the best deal that I can because I'm cheap. Uh, and I remember going out and I found a car that was a little more than I normally go for with cars and it was beautiful. It was by far the nicest car that I had ever had. I was ecstatic, and by that I mean it was a Civic that was uh, seven years old instead of the normal 10-year-old that I get, right? But to me, that was like beautiful. That was top of the line, like I was living the high life at that point, right? So I found this car, and I just vowed that I was gonna take care of this car forever uh, and, and just keep it beautiful and wonderful. Well. Having kids like that just goes out the window really quick, right? <laughs> so before long, like the inside was getting a mess, but I was able to keep the outside like pretty great for a while. And I remember one day it was the middle of winter and I'm backing out of my driveway. And after you've shoveled your driveway a while, like it was one of the, the winters that it, back when it actually used to snow uh, around here. And the sides of the driveways are piled up with these big snow piles and they'd frozen over. And I'm backing out of the driveway and uh, I remember hitting it with the bumper of the car and it cracked the bumper. I heard the crack. And I was like, oh man. And then I thought to myself, should I do something about that? And then I just thought, no, like, not worth it, let it go, not a big deal. Um, so it wasn't a big deal until springtime came. And in springtime, we had kids over, they were playing basketball in our yard, and the basketball bounces over, and it hits the bumper right on that crack, and that crack turned into a tear, uh, like all the way down to the bottom of the bumper, top to bottom. And I remember looking at it and thinking, I should probably do something about that. And then thinking, no, not a big deal, not going to worry about it. So... Left that one go. A month later, we're driving to Chicago to go to a wedding, and we're on the toll road, and a big gust of wind catches that tear in the bumper, and suddenly that tear becomes this uh, panel that is flapping in the wind, and I think, I should probably pull over and do something about this, but then, no, not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Eventually, that tear flies off and goes flying into the wind on the toll road, which created this really cool feature for my car. Uh, which was I no longer needed to look at the gauges to figure out how much uh, like windshield wiper fluid and stuff I had because uh, I could just look from the side of the car and I could see how much fluid was in all of my containers. So that was cool. Uh, and so I figured everything was fine. Uh, maybe I should go get it fixed, but no, that would cost money. Like, just leave it. Nothing, not, not a big deal. Move on. 
Well, the story ends with us uh, getting ready as a family one day, and we're getting ready to go to a wedding. And we're at, I remember we're at the Meyer, the Meyer gas station, and I pull up to the pump. And as I pull up to the pump, a woman pulls up opposite of me, and she rolls down her window, and so I go over and talk to her, and she says, hey, excuse me, sir. She said, my mother is deathly ill over in Elkhart, and I just don't have the gas to get over to be able to see her. Is there any way that you could give me some gas to be able to go see her? And normally I'm a little skeptical in situations like this, but I had the time and the ability that day, so I was like, you know what, yes, like I will, I will get you gas, just let me finish pumping this gas here and then I'll come right over and did it. And she said, okay, and she, she rolls up her window and waits. So I finish uh, spending the time pumping my gas and as I get done, I close everything up and I start walking over to her car and she rolls down the window and just looking at me awkwardly at this point and I was like, hey, wh hey what's up, I'm ready, I'm ready to get you gas, and she says, yeah, I was looking at your car. <laughs> your car's kind of a mess, man. <laughs> you, should, you should take care of your car, like, before you worry about me. I was like, no, 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 this is it's just a flesh wound, you know? Like, it, it's not a big deal. Like, my, my car, it, it runs. It just, it just doesn't look nice. Like, it's not a big She says, sir, I see you have children. You're a father. You need to take care of your kids, man. And with that, she rolls up her window and pulls off and asks somebody else to help her with her gas problems. <clears throat> when you get to the point that people who need money from you won't even take money from you <laughs> because your life looks so out of control, you know you've let things get too far out of hand. <clears throat> That's kind of story of my life, and I see that pattern time and time again. Uh, uh, that, um, that's on a silly note, but on a more serious note, we're continuing on in Genesis and looking at the story of Noah and the flood today. And basically what I want us to see is, is a story of people for whom life has gotten out of hand. But as I look at the story of the flood and as I was thinking about it, thinking back of all the times I've learned this story throughout my childhood, I realized the story of Noah is also a confusing story for me uh, to think about. It was one of those that made sense as a kid, uh, but the older I got, the more I just really began to have uh, some confusion and some tension as I would think about the story of Noah. And it sounds silly at first because on one hand, the story is so simple, right? You have God who sees the world and he sees the people that have gotten kind of evil and out of control themselves. So he decides to send a flood to uh, cleanse the earth once more. And he finds one good guy and his family and he ends up telling him to build a boat. So uh, that guy, Noah, and his family, they build a boat together we call it an ark, right? And then they go and they collect all the animals that they can find. They collect all the nice fluffy animals that are appropriate to draw on the, the walls of children's nurseries and everything, right? And they fit all these fluffy animals into the ark and then the rains came and, 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 it, and it raises the water levels and they're sailing on the boat. Eventually, the rains stop, everything dries out. Uh, Noah gets out of the boat. They sac he sacrifices to God. And God sends a rainbow promise to say like, hey, it's all good. I'm never going to do this again, right? So that was, I had that story memorized. I mean, that was like deeply ingrained into me. I knew, I could tell you every bit of that story, like what happened in it. Um, and, and our kids today, uh, these days are still memorizing that story. So on one level, it's so simple that kids can, can memorize it. But on the other level, there was a lot of questions going on, not about the details, but just what was the point of that story? That was what kept going on in me. Like, what is the point of the story of Noah? Because I know what it is, but I don't really know what it means. And so as I was thinking about this, I began to ask around, what is the point of the story of Noah and the flood? And I got a variety of answers. 
One of the answers I got was, the point of the story of Noah and the flood is that now we know the meaning of rainbows, and now we know that God promises never to destroy the earth completely again by flood. And that, that answer, I, I understood what they were saying, but one, I didn't really think that understanding the, the meaning of rainbows was like worth uh, having this story on every like nursery room <laughs> like across the world uh, throughout all of the centuries, right? Uh, and two, um, it's nice to, to realize a story that God promises never to flood the earth again, but I never would have thought that that was an issue if I hadn't read the story about God flooding the earth the first time, right? <laughs> so if you're telling a story uh, that both creates and solves a problem, that that ask some interesting questions for me, right? Uh, so the second uh, reason I got when I asked what's the point of the story of Noah from people was that uh, the story of Noah is a story about God's goodness because he rescued Noah and he rescued a pair of animals of all the kinds of animals. But in thinking through that, the question came into my mind that the situation is that you're telling me God destroyed all of humanity except for one family and God destroyed all of the animals on the planet except for one of every kind, and that's a story of goodness? That didn't make a lot of sense to me. It didn't sit very well. The third answer I got when I would ask around was that uh, the point of the story of Noah is just simply that it's history, that it happened, and so they wrote it down. And the question that would come to me is, if that's the case, why does science ask us to keep asking so many questions time and time again about this story? So I came to the conclusion that I must be missing something. There must be more that God wants us to know, more that God wants us to understand from this story. And so I began to study and just look into it and look into what, what are some of the scholars out there? What are some of the people that are really studying this? What are some of them saying? And I came to the conclusion, what, what I said earlier, is that scholars were seeing that this is a story of people for whom life has gotten out of hand. And there's two keys I want you to, to think about to help you understand this story properly. One is you need to know that this is a flood story, a flood story for ancient people. Now, for ancient people, they had these views of water that was different than our views of water. For the ancient people, water was a symbol of chaos. It's not really that for us anymore, right? We have swimming pools and cruise liners and jet skis. We've kind of tamed water in many ways, right? We, we've gotten familiar with water. But back then for them, water was this very scary, confusing, intimidating thing. And so it was a, it was a symbol of chaos uh, in the stories that they would write and in the stories that they would tell. You may see, have seen some of these maps of from ancient people that, that, that depicted how they saw the world. And when they would draw water, there was, it was often full of monsters and sea creatures and all these scary things, right? They found water to be this great symbol of chaos. So flood stories were stories that they told about when the chaos of the world all comes crashing down together in the midst. This was the flood stories, and it was part of the role that these stories played in their cultures. A second key I want you to know that it's helpful for us to understand this story is the composition of the story. When did the story came together? And again, scholars have been looking at this, and, and the, uh, many of them agreed together that the story of, the, of Noah, along with the, the stories we've been studying so far, all got written down and came together during a time called the exile. 
when God's people, the people of Israel, they had been living in their land, right? They had been living in the land that they knew was the promised land, the land that they felt that God had given them and God had told them that was gonna be for them. And they had made it to the promised land and they were living in the promised land. And then while they were there, uh, they ended up being conquered by foreign countries such as Babylon who came in and conquered God's people and didn't just conquer them. They ended up carrying them out, out of their neighborhoods, out of their homes, out of their cities and carrying them away and forcing them them to live as foreigners in the land of Babylon. So this is what the people of Israel were going through. They were living as foreigners out from their own land, out from their own cultural norms, out from their own people, living in this foreign place, living in Babylon together. And that, in that time, is when this story came to be, is when this story came about, right? So you have this story uh, of flood of chaos being written down by people whose lives in so many ways would seem to just be filled with all sorts of chaos. This is helpful for me in understanding it because I've found myself in times where my life just felt so full of chaos, when it felt like I was living in the midst of floods. I remember early on when I became a pastor, uh, I moved into the neighborhood of Keller Park here in South Bend, uh, which is a place where I ended up being for 13 years and just absolutely loved, uh, loved my time there. But in the beginning, it was really difficult. I came in not knowing what I was doing, and I came into the neighborhood where I felt really out of place, and I just knew that God had told me to be there and to love my neighbors around me. So I came in, and I was just trying to be helpful, and I was trying to be kind to everybody, but several years in, uh, I hit a time where it just wasn't working. All my attempts at being kind to people uh, were not, not even getting me uh, into friendship or actually finding me pushing people away from my life. The people I was trying to help were getting frustrated at me and my efforts to, to be kind to them. At the same time, people that I considered mentors in my life, people that I thought should have my back, turned on me and became sources of pain in my life. Uh, and and there's a couple of other uh, events going on this time where everything that I thought I knew just came crashing down together all at the same time. And I didn't know what to do. And I found myself at one point in, in this painful journey, I remember I just ended up collapsing on the floor just in a heap of tears uh, and just asking so many questions. Why is this going on? How did I get myself in the midst of this? How is God allowing this to happen? Is God the one doing this to me? Who is God? What is his role in all this? What do I need to do to move forward? I just felt like there was so much chaos. I didn't know where to begin, but I had so many questions. Maybe you've found yourself in a spot like that. Maybe you feel like you're there now, or maybe you've been there at some point where life has just gotten to be not just a little trickle here and there of chaos, but it's all collapsing in on you, and you have so many questions. You feel like your life is full of flood. And when you get to those times, when you get to those places where you feel so overwhelmed, you're just in the middle of it, just trying to make sense of it all, right? Just trying to figure out what is going on, why is it happening, and what does it look like for life to ever look any different? Well, this is the people that we're talking about to whom this story came to. It was the people of Israel in Babylon in the middle of their flood just trying to understand what is going on and just trying to make sense of everything, right? 
So as they're trying to figure these things out and as they're trying to, to, to wrestle with what is happening to them, uh, they're in Babylon and the Babylonians there had this story that they would tell about God's and people and floods. It was a common story for them. They had a story that was, that was really common. It was like, uh, like Santa Claus, you know, like a story that everybody knows that you tell together that people are aware of. And this story for them was a story of a guy named Utnapishtim. Can you say Utnapishtim? Yeah, it's a fantastic name. The Morrises, you guys can use that if you want when the baby gets here, right? All right. Uh, just write it down. It'll, it'll, it'll come in handy at some point. Uh, so Utnapishtim, and the story of Utnapishtim is found in what's known as the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, which is kind of a, a longer, broader story, and his story is just one part of it. But his story goes like this, and this is a story that everybody in Babylon probably would have been aware of and would have been telling each other uh, when they found themselves carried off to this land. Here's a story. Uh, there's these gods who get really annoyed by humanity because humanity has started to grow in numbers, which makes them louder and loud, loud numbers of people mean that it's hard for the gods to sleep when they want to sleep, right? And any parent gets the frustration that would arise with that, right? You're trying to sleep and there's noise going on and it's really difficult. So the gods get frustrated that there's all of this noise going on around them, keeping them from sleeping. So the gods decide together, they, they talk about it and they decide they're gonna send a flood to wipe everybody out uh, just so it can be a little more peaceful and they can get a little bit of rest. Uh, but one of the gods starts to feel uneasy about it, so he sneaks down and decides he's going to tell somebody about it uh, so that he can try and save some people. So he tells Utnapishtim about it and tells him what's going to happen and warns him that, hey, you should probably tear down your house and build a boat out of it to save you and your family from this mess. So he tells him what kind of a boat to build. And Utnapishtim does that. He gathers his family around. He, g he gathers the craftsmen of the village around and they build this boat together. And as they build this boat, the rains are about to come. And so they gather themselves into the boat. And they, they gather all of their belongings into the boat. And then they go out and they gather the animals in the area into the boat. And then they seal up the boat. And then the rains come. And then the flood comes. And then the boat sails around in the midst of the waters. And then it dries up. And when, it, when the rains stop, uh, Utnapishtim ends up releasing three birds, one after another, after another, to find out when... Uh, there's going to be dry land available. And then once the dry land there sure is available, uh, the boat ends up settling on the top of a mountain. And then they get out of the boat, they make a sacrifice to the gods, and the gods decide uh, to look favorably on Utnapishtim and his family, and so they give him and his wife immortality. Okay, much of that sounds familiar, yeah? Yeah, it sounds a lot like the story of Noah. So if the people of Israel are living in the middle of this flood of their life being filled with chaos, and they're in Babylon, and they're hearing the story of flood of chaos, and they would be hearing the story, if they're hearing that and saying, and asking themselves the question, is this what things are like? Here, here is the answer that they would hear to their problems. Uh, one, gods are cranky. Two, the flood is probably because the gods got annoyed at your existence. So three, you better hope you get lucky and escape. Right? That's not exactly an inspirational story. They're not going to be making Hallmark movies about that kind of a story anytime soon. And so the people would have been hearing this. The people of Israel and Babylon would have been hearing this story and asking themselves, is that true? Is that, that story of gods being annoyed and just frustrated at us, trying to wipe us out, is that true? Is that what our problems are about? That the gods find us annoying? Is that what our God is like? 
And the resounding answer from God would have come back, no, no, that is not what is going on here. It's something different. And so God inspires them to take that story of the flood and to change the story together to answer the questions with more truth and more, more wisdom. God gave them a story, a different telling of the story that actually told them who he was and what was really going on with them. So if we compare the two stories then, we compare the story of Utnapishtim and we compare the story of Noah and we see the things that have changed between the two, those are the things that God wants us to know are different about who he is than about how the pagan people of Babylon understood the gods and what they were going through. We need to look for those changes and the biggest changes in these stories are at the beginning and the end of the story. So if you have your scriptures from your, uh, from your program, you can uh, grab that, and we're gonna first look at the first difference in Genesis 6, 5 through 13, in the beginning of the story. It says this. It said, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and said his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah which was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how, saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. All right, so here we have the beginning of the story. And in the Babylonian story, the story begins that this is all happening because the gods are annoyed and angry because of the existence of people and the noise that they create. But in this story, in the Hebrew story, uh, it isn't that God has become angry. Instead, God is more disturbed as he's looking at the people that he's created. He's troubled. God creates the world. He says it is good. He says it's the way I want. And then very shortly later in the story we're given, God looks down and sees all of this craziness and kind of asks himself, what have I done? As he looks down. As a parent, I also get this feeling, right? I remember uh, this when I became a dad for the first time. Um, I just had all these thoughts in my head about how awesome being a dad was going to be and how, how I knew I was going to have a daughter and I just wanted a baby girl really bad and I was just going to snuggle this little girl and she was going to be uh, she was going to be a daddy's girl you know and I was going to be her hero and it was just going to be lovely and perfect uh, forever right so I had this picture and sure enough you know she came in the hospital and she was adorable and we got all sorts of snuggles and then we took her home I remember the very first day we took her home uh, we're just settling into the house together and I remember she's crying, and my wife's like, yeah, she's going to need a diaper change. And I was like, all right, I got this. You know, this is what I've been preparing for. Like, I've, I've watched all the videos. You know, I went through the, like, parenting classes. You know, like, I have been training for this moment for the last several months. This is my chance to show how awesome of a dad I am. So I went over, and I began to change her diaper. And as I did, I, I remember lifting up her feet, and that's when I became aware of, like, the explosive capabilities of my child. And there was poop flying through the air. 
and on the walls and all down my arm. And I just remember thinking to myself, what have I done? What have I done? I wasn't angry. I was deeply troubled. <laughs> Maybe a little disgusted, but it was different, right? And there's a difference there between deeply troubled and angry and disgusted. But it's not just God's reaction in the story that sets apart the different heart that God has for his people. It's not just his reaction, it's also the cause of the frustration that's different. In the Babylonian story, it was just annoyance, but here in the story, we're told the story, the problem is the wickedness of the people. And he chooses Noah, not as some random person, but he chooses Noah because of the goodness or righteousness of Noah. And this is kind of a new concept for the ancient people. They were used to telling stories about gods and gods kind of being cranky and temperamental and you just had to kind of figure out how to like appease them so that they didn't do cranky things. Uh, but this question that comes up here is this uh, thought of goodness and the effects of goodness and wickedness and the effects of wickedness. And these were kind of new questions for them to be thinking about so in this story comes the question, might our lack of goodness be the problem? As we're in the midst of this flood, maybe it's not just random. Maybe there's something in us we need to consider. Might it be us? Not that we're simple, simply annoying, but what if we are destructive in some way? What if maybe our actions are causing problems for ourselves? And this is actually true to what the rest of the story we see of them. Right before they ended up being captured into exile and conquered and taken into exile, uh, we see that they had actually turned away from God, that they had, the people of Israel had actually started worshiping other gods and worshiping other idols, and their behavior had far long strayed from the path of goodness that God had set out for them. So they were seeing this story taking place in their life. And the lesson that's coming out of the story as they're seeing it, as God is revealing it to them, the lesson that's coming to them is that we should consider where our actions may have brought us destruction. We have to consider that. Now, I want to put out a quick disclaimer here. Our faith goes to great lengths also to say that not everything bad that happens to us in life is because we've done something wrong. We see this in stories throughout we see this even in the story of Noah, right? Even though Noah is the one rescued by God, uh, he survives the flood, but Noah, who we're told Noah is good, Noah has been doing things the way that he should be doing things, and yet he still gets caught up in the midst of the flood. He still loses everything except his life and the life of his family. He still experiences the flood in some way in the midst of all of that, even though we're told that he's good he still experiences some flood in the story. We see in the story of Job that his friends are arguing with him saying, hey man, like if you're going through difficult times, you must have done something wrong in your life to earn God coming after you like this. And this point of the story of Job is this strong pushback to say, no, that's not, that's not how things work. We see a blind man that comes before Jesus to be healed and the teachers of the law like see the blind man and they say, hey, Jesus, why is this man blind? Is he blind because of his sin or because of the sin of his parents? And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. You're thinking about this entirely wrong. Not everything bad that happens is because 
somebody's done something wrong. This is important for us to realize. We look at the tragedy in Manchester last night, and we see people who were killed, who experienced great chaos and flood through no fault of their own, rather through the wickedness of others, right? We see uh, civil rights injustices throughout history where sometimes people and entire people groups have had to live their entire life in the flood of chaos through no fault of their own, but simply through the systems already in place in the world that were causing problems. So saying this in this story is not to say that everything wrong that happens or every chaos we experience is because we or somebody else have done something wrong. But that said, the story does ask us to at least consider the potential that there may be some stuff in our life that no longer reflects the goodness that God desires for us. And that maybe we are leading our lives in some ways into the midst of the flood and into some chaos. And if we're going to be people that are whole and healthy people walking with God, then we have to be able to examine and confess where needed in the midst of our floods. There's another question that comes up in the story of Noah, and it's this, what kind of a God is God? What kind of a God is he? Can God be trusted? Or said a different way, thinking about the flood, if, if our life is being flooded with water and chaos, is God the one at the faucet? Is he the one that's doing this to us? Well, if you look just at the beginning of the story, the, the answer is an obvious yes. Right? We're told that God is the one that is bringing the floods to the midst of the people. But the interesting thing here is that for the people of Israel held in captivity, they're telling a story that's set in the past, a story about their past. And if you're looking into the past, the only answer that matters is the one at the end of the story. Have you guys, anybody here read Harry Potter books? I'm a little nerdy. I've, I've read them just with my children. No, I've read them for me. Um, I love them, and I, I love how they deal with, uh, with character throughout the book. Not just characters, so they do a good job with characters, but I love how they deal with character. And there's a lot of different characters in the story that there's a lot of uncertainty about their character. There's a lot of questions. Not necessarily that they're doing good and bad things, but that as people look at them, they're not sure if they're doing good or bad things. It's hard to tell. It's hard to really know without being able to know and trust them. But the really great thing is by the end of the story, you really see, based on the actions at the end, you see what the character of the characters really was. And the beautiful thing about it is you go back through then, once you kind of know, okay, this person, this is who they are, they're good, this person, man, they, they really betrayed everybody in the end. Once you know that and you go back through and you reread the stories again at a different point in time, you begin to see everything entirely differently the, other, the next time through because you know the, the, the resounding character of who that person is. It's the same thing in this story. The end of how they present God is the important thing that helps us to know what they see of what kind of God they're really dealing with. So let's see what the answer to that is. Let's read Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 1, also in your program. 
It says this, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, Noah sacrificed the burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Remember that. And never again will I destroy living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. All right, so the end of the Babylonian story of Utnapishtim uh, basically is that Utnapishtim ends up, he thwarted the gods. The gods tried to wipe everybody out, and he ended up escaping. He thwarted the gods, and he receives immortality. But this story is different, and this story has this really beautiful ending. At the end of the story, uh, uh, we see that last verse there, and in the following verses in the rest of the chapter, this, there's this really beautiful refresh of all of creation where after the flood comes and after all of the destruction, we see a God who goes through and rebuilds everything, and he goes through that process of creation, uh, mimicking that process of creation that we already read about, and refreshes and rebuilds and recreates and let's pause here real quick and say this is a great aspect of the character of God, that you can know that in the midst of your floods, in the midst of the chaos of what you're going through, that there is a God who's with you who will rebuild things on the other side. He will walk through, he will refresh, he will rebuild, he will recreate. But before that story of creation, we see this interesting thing there in verse 21. Again, uh, af after the sacrifice was made, God said in verse 21, he says, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. This cracks me up as I read this, because God had this great plan in the beginning of the story, and the great plan was, uh, I see sin, so I will purify the earth. I will wipe all of the sinfulness out of the earth and leave only the good stuff behind. And so God sends a flood, and he does that, and he gets to the other end of the flood, and he looks down, and he sees Noah, even, the good one, is still kind of screwed up. <laughs> and in the first story, right after, right after this passage, the very first thing we see from Noah and his sons is them getting into trouble, like, right away. And so it's like God had these great plans for purifying everything, and at the end, he's like, well, that didn't really work. <laughs> what do we got now? He looks down, and he sees humanity, and he says, as I look at humanity, I still see humanity that every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. So he looks down, and he sees this is who humanity still is, and yet he takes a different direction. He says, even though humanity's heart is this, never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. So humanity is still who they've been, but God will treat people differently. The God at the end of the story is different in their understanding of who he is than how they understood him at the beginning of the story. What kind of a God is God then is the question that comes out of this. What kind of a God is he? Well, he's a God that now, in the midst of our floods that we're going through now, he looks down and he sees us. He sees what's in our heart. He sees our inclinations, as it, said, he, it says here. He sees what's going on, the, the thoughts we may try and hide from others, the things we think only we know about. He knows who we are. He knows what's really in this. He sees that, and yet he's committed that even though he sees this, 
He's not going to react with destruction. We have a God who's a God of surprising goodness instead. And we see this most clearly in Jesus. I always tell people, if Jesus is God come in human form, which we believe he is, then we have no more clear picture, no less confusing picture than what we see when we look at Jesus, right? And in Jesus, we see a God who sees our mess. He sees us. He knows what we're dealing with. In Romans 5, 8, it says that why we were still in our sin, he did all of this. We haven't tricked him. <laughs> we, we haven't swindled him. We haven't hidden our stuff from him. He sees us as we are. He sees us in the midst of that, and yet he doesn't reach for the judgment switch to destroy us and start over. Instead, in Jesus, what we see is a different approach. We see that God sees us, and he jumps in with us. He takes on human flesh. He steps into the midst of the flood alongside us. He jumps in the boat and walks us through. We're told not only does he resist the, the judgment of the floods on us, but as he jumps in with us, he is faithful to us all the way to the point of being willing to die on the cross for us. That's the God at the end of the story of Noah. So in your flood, no matter who you are or what you've done, no matter what other people have said about you, the story would want you to know that God is not out to destroy you. He's not at the faucet. He's on the boat with you and will carry you through. I want one last thought that's not exactly from the story of Noah, but coming logically out of this. If God isn't the faucet of, our, of the chaos in our lives, Let's ask the question, are we making sure we're not at the faucet in the lives of others? If we're to be imitating God and following his path. I've got to be honest, as someone who's passionate about fairness, this is something I have to be aware of. I'm a bit of a, a bit of a, I, road rage is extreme because um, I'm too passive to be like ragey, but I'm, I'm a road heavy annoyance um, guy and I'm the guy that like I'm driving down the toll road and someone like speeds past me and cuts off and I'm like wanting to like pray or pick up my phone and like find out if there's like a, a highway patrol stop ahead that they can like catch that guy because there's nothing more I want than to see that guy pulled over on the side of the road right for like what he did to me you know he's doing something wrong and I just so badly out of fairness want to see want to see him caught and want to see him suffer for what he's done uh Thankfully, it normally stops with road rage uh, for me in those areas. Uh, but I think it can often get much worse for us as Christians, if we're honest. And we look at the church across America. There's so many times that in the church we look at others and we think we see things in the Bible. Perhaps even it's well-intentioned, uh, really trying to seek and get at what we find in the Bible. And we see something that we see in the Bible and we see people whose lives um, don't look like the same path that we see that God has laid out in the Bible. And so many times as Christians, the temptation is to take steps on our own to try to eliminate the wickedness in others. We take steps to step to the faucet, take steps to do something about it. And in doing so, we become a source of chaos and destruction in the lives of others. 
all too many times. It's a pattern that's far too common. And we have to ask the question, is that us? Is that us? When we look at others and we see them off the path we think they should be on, do we turn on the waters of judgment or do we jump in the boat alongside them in the midst of the flood? We're gonna have Dan and the team come back forward and they're going to be able to help us to process through some of this stuff before we leave. But this is one I want us to know. That you, in your life, I don't know all of your stories, but you may be experiencing some floods of chaos in your life. Maybe right now. Maybe you've experienced it in your past, and maybe you carry some of that pain still with you. It still feels fresh at times. You can feel it. You can relate to it. But let us know that it's good and fair to search our hearts and let God search our hearts and consider that maybe we've gotten off the path and that maybe there's some things in us and what we're doing that might be contributing. So let's do some of that searching together here tonight before we're done. But in the midst of that, we should also know that God sees whatever is on the other side of that search. He already sees it. He already knows it. And he's not at the faucet. He's not seeking destruction for our lives. Instead, God is pursuing us with his surprising goodness.